the one and only Cliff Richard and Buscemi. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 19 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in chronological order. Normally, I like to open the program by reading some comments and emails from listeners about the previous month's show. And we did receive a lot of great reaction to our Christmas episode with Mark Cunningham. And we'll read some of these comments on our next show. So, why are we holding off on that? Well, because this month we're joined by Justin Gosman and returning guest, Gurdeep Ladar of TCB Cast, an unofficial Elvis Presley fan podcast. We're going to be reviewing 1962's 32 Minutes and 17 Seconds with Cliff Richard LP, best remembered these days, I think, for spawning the UK number two hit, It'll Be Me. But since we're hearing three opinions on these tracks, rather than just the usual two, this is on course to being the longest episode of this program ever. Now, when I started this podcast back in 2021, I made a vow to myself that no single episode would ever last more than an hour. That might sound a little strict, but I did that because I figured most people have maybe a half-hour commute to work every day and then maybe a half-hour drive back, and chances are you'd be able to get through a show in one day rather than having to stop and then pick it up the next day, and that's my world anyway. And another reason I try to keep them under an hour is these podcasts take a lot of time to edit. <laughs> and if there's one thing I don't have much of these days, it's free time. So the more compact, the better. I edit these shows in little stops and starts, actually, over many, many weeks, sometimes months, sometimes working on several shows simultaneously. As such, I don't think any of us, myself, Gurdeep, and Justin, could have ever imagined that this discussion, recorded months ago, which is naturally Elvis-centric, would be published just days after the tragic death of Lisa Marie Presley. TCBcast released a moving episode focusing on grieving her sudden passing, and I strongly recommend that anybody listening to this go check out that episode of their program. And obviously, I also want to extend my sympathies to the Presley family and the Elvis fan community at large. I'm one of you, so I feel it too. Hopefully, this discussion today will be kind of a welcome distraction from that. I had a great time with Justin and Gurdip. In fact, maybe too great a time because I'm laughing all the way through this, this episode, and I know you will too. When Gurdip was on, Way back on episode three, we talked about how TCB cast came to be. This time, I opened the conversation asking Justin how he began his project, Blue Suede Reviews. Well, first off, thanks for having us again on We Say Yeah. Uh, I've listened to every single episode, and I will tell you, you are slowly turning me into a Cliff Richard fan. <laughs> oh, good. good. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. I'm learning a lot more. Um, I mean, being over here, uh, you know, in, in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota, I didn't know that much about uh, about Cliff. So you are you are helping people. You're like, what uh, is this UK place? I've never heard of it. Yeah. 
<laughs> but in all seriousness, um, in terms of Blue Suede Reviews, uh, that was a project that I started back in 2016 to review each of Elvis's movies chronologically. And the original conceit of the project was, I guess, something akin to what had been popular in the years leading up to that on YouTube, where people would do movie reviews and it was sort of interjected with jokes and not sketches or anything like that, but you sort of took, took the piss out of various movies and uh, kind of riffed on it. But I took the angle more of trying to provide some historical context and try to take Elvis's movies somewhat seriously. And then I stopped about a year into the project and I had only done up through, I think, uh, Flaming Star was the last one that I did. And because I was doing it on YouTube, obviously, uh, if you're using clips of the actual movies themselves, you get flagged pretty quickly for, um, uh, for content ID. And so a lot of them were continually being pulled. And so it took a few years. But when we started up our Patreon for TCB cast, that was the opportunity that we had to revive the series. And what it's transformed into is something uh, a lot deeper than I thought I was going to do. I'm basically doing thorough social and cultural analyses of Elvis's movies in chronological order. And really digging into a lot of the off the beaten path stuff that people haven't really looked into. Like I just finished the script for uh, for the one for 1965's Girl Happy, the one where Elvis famously does do the clam. Of course. And that's, uh, it's a 20,000 word script. And I go into a whole bunch of history on like the city of Fort Lauderdale in spring break and all of that. So it, it goes off on these wild tangents. And so, yeah, when it was on YouTube, that was how Gradeep found me. And I think he mentioned that when he first came on, we say, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's, that's a project that has been ongoing now since we started up um, TCB cast and specifically the Patreon, which given me the time and resources to do that. I just want to interject something, you know, back in the day when DVDs came out and used to buy DVDs because of the extras and some of those extras would be awesome. Like they'd have a two hour documentary about the film. And if you were into that film, it was like the greatest thing because you would actually even buy the DVD just because of that documentary. So essentially what Justin's doing is, is, is making these documentaries about these films that like when you buy Elvis um, films on DVD, they rarely ever have like a full length documentary. They might have something short, but this is essentially the service he's providing. He's these could be put into Blu-rays of the Elvis films and you'd have a proper documentary, which is crazy to think about. Well, you never know. Maybe one day EPE will contact Justin for his input on some kind of Elvis official release i i would love to have the opportunity to e even consult on like what should be included in and really the the thing for me and what i've appreciated about on we say yeah you have bothered to dip into cliff's films and yeah you focus primarily on the soundtracks because that's the focus of your show but you have dug into some of the plots and things on there and i think one of the great shames is that elvis's films and uh, a lot of the films of that era starring, you know, teen idols, rock and rollers, they tend to get sort of brushed off as not being particularly important or not very good. And in some cases they aren't very good, but I think there's interesting things about history that we can learn from them. So that that's my biggest thing is I think that there's an entire uh, exploration of who Elvis was and what he represented to 
uh, our history and culture, not just here in America, but around the world. I mean, because that was, I mean, Elvis's movies in the 60s, you know, just comparing him and Cliff, like you couldn't go see Elvis in concert. And he wasn't making television appearances. So if you wanted to see Elvis Presley at all in the 1960s, you had to go see one of the movies. Whereas, you know, artists like Cliff or uh, the Beatles or people like that, they, they had the multi-prong, you know, uh, projects where they would have a film, they would have uh, concert tours and they would have albums and singles. Very interesting stuff. Speaking of concert tours, it should be noted that had things gone as planned, we would not be discussing this album today. 32 minutes and 17 seconds with Cliff Richard, because what was scheduled for release was a live album, live at the ABC Kingston, which was supposed to come out between the soundtrack to The Young Ones, which I talked about with Jamie Kay, mutual friend of ours, and this record. But because of technical issues, it was deemed unreleasable and eventually it came out in 2002 i don't know what those technical issues were that prevented it from being released but it's pretty great honey marks i guess set and i read it read it go Let's transition into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, The album, 32 minutes and 17 seconds, released on September 14th, 1962. It reached number three on the UK charts and stayed on the charts for 21 weeks. Now, the previous studio album is called 21 Today. That's a favorite of the early Cliff Richard albums for me. This one has some of the same formula of that record where you have some songs performed with the shadows and some songs that are pop songs with Nori Paramore and his orchestra. I kind of feel like this one is not as good as 21 Today. There's less original material on this than on the previous album. There's a lot of covers on this. Had you, Justin, or Gurdip ever heard of this album before? Gurdip? Uh, no, I've never heard of it. Um, although I've heard of the songs on here, some of them, um, not necessarily uh, Cliff's versions, but yeah, never heard of this. As I said, my previous um, uh, time on the show, I really wasn't exposed to Cliff Richard very much, except on those compilations of the 50s and early 60s stuff, and he'd have an odd song on there. But yeah, I, I really should dig into his discography, but I really haven't. The only, my only outlet or, or only information is this your show. All right. And how about you, Justin? Have you ever heard this record before? No, my exposure to Cliff was even less than Gurdip. <laughs> but I, but I, I definitely was familiar, like Gurdip was, with a number of the songs just from other artists. Well, of the cover songs on this album, and there are a number of them, I think the first track is the most successful cover on this record. It's It'll Be Me written by Jack Clement, and this was recorded on May 17th, 1962. I think this is actually an improvement on the Jerry Lee Lewis version of this song, even though Cliff utilizes some very Jerry Lee inflections while singing. If you hear somebody knocking on your door, if you see somebody crawling across the floor, baby, it'll be me. Yeah, I'll be looking for you. 
it it's a strong opener justin what do you think yeah i uh i actually quite quite like this um and this is one that i've heard uh the two of you talk about on a on a bonus episode that you joined for our show talking about some of the different versions of it'll be me and it's kind of interesting that you're having us we're recording this obviously much earlier than when um when this is going to drop but jerry lee lewis obviously just passed away very very recently and yes. uh, thought it was fascinating that we're talking about one of cliff's albums that leads with a jerry lee lewis cover but it's a it's a really really solid uh performance for, for by cliff in the shadows i'm i'm i really enjoy this gurdeep um yeah as we've talked about previously i'm much more familiar with the jerry lee lewis version of the song it was like the b-side to a whole lot of shaking go on but my problem is does cliff really do anything different with this like it's almost the same thing including like you said ghosty little inflections that lewis added my my problem and i've talked about this on our show is straight covers of songs like um like what's the point of doing a song exactly like the original why not change it a bit like if i want to hear the og I'll just listen to the OG, the Lewis version. Like we we've talked about it before. Like for example, the always on my mind that was covered by the pet shop boys, they totally changed it. And for some reason, people like Mr. Gosman here have a problem with it. I thought it's great. I was like, well, why do, why do I care if it doesn't sound like the Elvis is original? I want something different. If I want the original, I'll hear Elvis. I don't know what you guys think, but I thought he could have been done something different. I, I don't think he changed it enough for me. And my side, the the flip side of that coin, because this debate is ongoing, obviously. <laughs> it's <okay>. never ended. <laughs> the, the flip side of that is that sometimes you don't necessarily want a vastly different arrangement. You just want the comfort of getting to hear your favorite artist do a version of that other song that you also happen to like from someone else. And like the nice thing about this one is that you don't have all the baggage that comes with Jerry Lee Lewis. That's for sure. And if you want to hear him do it a different way, he recorded it a few more times. Well, if you hear everybody knocking on your door, you see somebody calling, pick up the phone, baby. Let's move on to track two on this, which is an original song. And it's funny because when I first heard this without looking at the writer's credits, I assumed it was like an older doo-wop song that I just didn't know. But this was written by Shadows guitarist Bruce Welsh. So I've been told, recorded on December 18th, 1961. My opinion on this, it's great. You know, I think the backing vocals are a little strangely engineered sometimes they overpower cliff on this so at the end of a rainbow you find a pot of gold so i've been told so But 
But aside from that, I mean, I have no complaints. Gurdip? Yeah, this sounds really good. Um, kind of reminds me of like a Beatles, early Beatles track. Um, maybe a little bit of rockabilly influence in there. Like something Gene Vincent might have recorded and he would have excelled at it, I thought. I thought this is really good. Justin? I knew you were going to say something like that. What? <laughs> it's, got, it's got a lot of the, the typical things that you love in particular. Like It's got a, a, a very doo-wop feel, like you were saying, Ghosty. Yeah. And I, I really, really like this as well. Um, I, I think that this is, I mean, this is a point in the 60s where you can credibly still get away with proper doo-wop, you know, being in, you know, 62. So yeah, I think it's it's a very serviceable track, and I think Bruce did a, a did a pretty serviceable job tackling that genre. Did, did, have they done many like doo wop style tracks? Yeah, there were a handful, especially in the very early days of the Shadows before they became an instrumental act when they were doing, I don't know, a kind of Danny and the Juniors type of sound, and then. Cliff, of course, dipped back into that well over the years, and his last U.S. Top 20 hit was a cover of Shep and the Limelight's Daddy's Home. So I guess between the two, you could cobble together a Cliff and the Shadows do doo-wop compilation. Now, anyone who bought this record back in 1962 and they're just interested in rock and roll, they're probably going to be thrown off by Cut 3 on here which is called How Long Is Forever, written by uh, British songwriter Chaz McDavid and Shirley Douglas. This was recorded December 5th, 1961. This is the kind of proto-Europop that I actually have a big fondness for. So there are some folks in the Cliff in the Shadows fandom, in this case, this is just Cliff with the Nori Paramore Orchestra, but there are some folks that just want him to do rock and roll. I am fine with him branching out and doing just light pop. And this is the kind of song I could see another singer like Petula Clark doing or Helen Shapiro. And it works for me. You know, it conjures up images of jet-setting young lovers cycling through Spain and, <laughs> you know, having a romantic getaway. You ask me how the flowers grow And what makes a glowworm glow How high is the sky How long is forever you want to know how an acorn small yeah it has this wonderful sweeping string arrangement and the the lyrics yeah are they a little you know kind of bog standard romance fluff but i think that i i think that in spite of that it's the the way that cliff's voice meshes with nori paramore's arrangement that gives it a strength and i, I can see because I mean, you know, obviously, that similar to, you know, some of that push and pull with Cliff, Elvis got a lot of that, too, where he started shifting towards more pop around the same time. Right. With some of those semi-operatic uh, ballads like Surrender and It's Now or Never. And uh, there were some Elvis fans that weren't happy about that. So I can see, like, this is even more in your face about that. Right. <laughs> <Elvis> <laughs> But I think Cliff can get away with it a little better because his voice lends itself more credibly to an orchestral arrangement. Um, and he doesn't have that bar of expectation 
that someone like an Elvis Presley had in quite the same way. And I, I'm always, you know, obviously we're the Elvis guys, so I'm always making points of comparison, but this kind of the sentiments of the lyrics kind of remind me of a song that Elvis got around to many, many years later from uh, Sid Wayne, Ben Wiseman and Fred Carger called I'll Never Know. How many stars are in the sky? I'll never know What fire lights a firefly I'll never know Where it's sort of comparing love to these like powerful forces of nature that are just the way that they are, you know. So I really like this. Gurdip? Yeah, I love that Richard is accompanied by an orchestra on, on these some of these tracks. It gives me um vibes of that the later Buddy Holly stuff when he, stuff he was playing with before his death. Right. Strings. Um this yeah, it sounds like something I would hear like on a lounge act. Um great stuff though. I got to step up my Cliff Richard game cuz it's severely lacking like these kind of songs are really up my alley. Um and as Justin said, I wonder if Cliff was getting influenced by some of Elvis's stuff at this period, at this time period, because it, it's it's really similar. Can you be a Cliff Richard fan and not be an Elvis fan? Like, if you're a Cliff Richard fan, is it automatically assumed you're an Elvis fan? Because, I mean, he's his influence. I would say nowadays, yes, but years ago there was a huge rivalry and it was felt like you couldn't you had to choose one or the other (laughs) right certainly not in america that was because people just chose elvis they didn't choose cliff but they're like well who's this other guy (laughs) right but in uh especially in in britain and elsewhere in europe it was cliff versus elvis cliff versus elvis uh speaking of elvis the songwriters of the next song Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett should be no stranger to Elvis fans, and they contributed plenty of songs to Cliff as well. This one's called I'm Walking the Blues, recorded on April 4th, 1962. Cliff has often joked, maybe there's some truth in this, but he's joked that he would get songs that Elvis rejected by his writers. I could hear Elvis singing a song like this, maybe having it be done in the style of something like She's Not You. I got nobody since you left me Got no doggy for company So I'm walking Walking the blues Every night when the sun goes down You can see me all over town Just walking yeah, walk in the blue And when we're dancing It almost feels the same I gotta stop myself from Whispering your name She yeah, as you said, Elvis would get a bunch of demos, especially during this, this period, early 60s And um, the writers would have to essentially just keep writing songs for specific uh kind of theme and elvis would reject or you know record them and so there was a lot of demos that got passed over and i'm sure that this is one of the that got passed over because <laughs> it's written by tepper and bennett um but i also wonder if cliff was a little influenced by guy mitchell's uh singing the blues from 56 because he's really giving me those vibes 
I have to say, so far, I'm really impressed by these songs besides the, the first Jerry Lewis cover. Um, it's really in my wheelhouse when it comes to the early 60s stuff. But yeah, as you said, this sounds like something Elvis would have sung in like Girls, Girls, Girls or something. And Justin? Oh, my entire note in my in my uh, my notes for this was chances this was submitted to Elvis first, question mark, upwards of 90 <laughs> percent. <Right. laughs> I feel like the next song we're going to talk about is even more so. Um, it's another Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett cut. This one called Turn Around, recorded on January 18th, 1962. It's another song that sounds like it was earmarked for Elvis. I love Cliff's recording of it. I, I feel as if Cliff is doing it as Elvis would have done it. Turn your pretty face to mine Lift your pretty eyes from the ground I forgive you everything So turn around, turn around He's basically, I mean, he got this obviously from Conway Twitty, who did it uh, earlier the same year. Mm-hmm. Or or more likely, they probably both got it from the same Tepper Bennett demo. I, I appreciate it arrangement-wise that even though um, they wouldn't have probably known that this would have been done this way, but it sort of has a lullaby-esque can't help falling in love sort of arrangement. And I don't know when this was recorded as to whether or not Can't Help Falling in Love would have already been out on the market. Well, this was recorded January 18th, 1962. Okay. So after Can't Help Falling in Love. Yeah. 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 Because that was end of 61. So yeah, I mean, there might be some influence of that on, on how that, because if you go back and you listen to Conway Twitty's original version, it's kind of similar, but not really. It's just, it, the similarities are just the fact that it's the same song, not so much the specifics of how it's arranged. Turn your pretty face to mine Lift your pretty eyes from the ground I forgive you everything But I just thought it was interesting that you you had us listen to basically a an Elvis sound-alike doing a copy of an Elvis sound-alike. Right. And I, I say that with the utmost respect to Cliff. Sure. And Gurdip, how about you? Yeah, I know. I I heard the Conway Twitty version. And um, yeah, I don't think um, I don't think Cliff is following Twitty. It's kind of his... Like, I know in the past, Conway Twitty has done the Elvis thing himself. But I don't think he does it on this son as much. And... Cliff Richard is like, well, I can do it. And then he does his own version. And it sounds like something off of like Elvis something for everyone, like the ballad side. It, yeah. As I said, yeah, he seems to be channeling Elvis. And I like it. I don't know. It's weird. I, I really like this. Maybe because he sounds so much like Elvis. I'm like, yeah, this is good. Sitting down and listening to this album, I was like, did Ghosty bring us on because this is the most Elvisy Cliff Richard album? Because it seems <laughs> like it. I don't know if this is the most, but uh, it's pretty close. 
Pretty close. Speaking of which, um, here's a song, the next cut, that both Cliff and Elvis recorded. Well, pretty much the whole world's recorded this. It's Blueberry Hill, written by Vincent Rose, Al Lewis, and Larry Stock, recorded May 17th, 1962. You know, even though Blueberry Hill started life as a big band number by uh, Swing and Sway with Sammy Kay, Fats Domino's version is so definitive that all other attempts suffer in comparison so this is pleasant um it sounds like filler the only thing i could say about it that makes it a little different is that cliff sort of dramatically speaks at the end of the song but uh i'm not feeling blueberry hill though though we're apart you're part of me still Blueberry Hill. I didn't even know that Cliff spoke at the end of this because, to be honest, I made it 30 seconds because of that high pitched <laughs> organ sound. The frequency of that was just unlistenable. Like, I it got to the, the, the stop where you know the stop time thing, and then I was like okay, is that the end of it? Is it going to keep going? And then it came right back in and I'm like, no, I can't do it. <laughs> I get where he's going with this. It's not that much different. I just couldn't handle the organ. <laughs> and that's the only song that I didn't listen to all of on this whole album. I loved every other song on this album, but this is the one where I was just like, I can't do it. <laughs> How about you, Kardeep? Yeah. Yeah. As you said, we're all familiar with Fats Domino's version. Cause it just, that's like the gold standard. And and then also Elvis, um, when he covered it, he seemed to be trying too hard and trying to be Domino, but he fell short. And this is odd because he's not doing Fats Domino. He's doing like Elvis, but not 50s Elvis, but rather 60s crooner Elvis. Um, it's okay. Um, yeah, as, as you said, the, the odd thing is that last word, he just speaks rather than sing. And I'm like, why? Very odd. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even that far. <laughs> We know about you and the organs, and you don't you don't yeah. like this because a lot of Elvis songs in the mid mid sixties and stuff had that organ. <laughs> you kind of check just, out. I mean, honestly, on this one, it wasn't even necessarily that the, the it was the presence of the organ; it was the specific frequency of the organ that it was just played so high that I yeah it was it was rough. <laughs> Moving on. Now this is a this is an odd track. Let's make a memory, written by Bill Crompton. Recorded on December 4th, 1961. Normally, this kind of song with very ecstatic background vocals would grate on me. But again, this is kind of like one of those Europop songs, those jet-setting Europop records. Um, And I like it. Incidentally, this was released as a single in Japan where it hit number two. Let's make a memory. Let's make a memory. Let's make a memory, let's try Making a memory, you and I Take my hand, promise me Before the night is over, we'll make a memory Let's make a memory I'm gonna open up my arms So you can thrill me with all your charms Yeah, I think he sounds good on this. It's like nice and bouncy and pretty much the types of songs that Justin here makes fun of me for liking, kind of like uh, Beat Shack. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's good. It's it's one of those you know, mid sixties type Elvis songs that so, sound like they were written in ten minutes, and they probably were. I don't mind it. I can't hate on this kind of song. How about you, Justin? Honestly, this is my favorite song. Like, oh, okay, this is good. This is going what? in my rotation. Yeah, this is my favorite song off this album. Crazy. Yeah, this is fantastic. And I, I mean, the backing vocals they don't phase me that much because of you know. I'm just used to that in these in these early 60s type recordings. Um, you know, do do they hold up, you know, nowadays? No, but if you've got the ear for it, you can kind of overlook it because what Cliff is doing is just fantastic. He's very smooth and I, I it's interesting that you mentioned that it was a single in Japan because I did find when I was researching this to see like, were there other versions of this? Did he ever perform it again? And I did see that on his live in Japan album later on in the sixties, he did it in a medley, which also yeah. sounded pretty good. Let's make a memory. Let's try making a memory. You and I take my hand. Promise me before the night is over. We'll make a memory. So now we get to another cover associated with Fats Domino. He must have been going through like a Fats Domino phase here. It's When My Dreamboat Comes Home, written by Clifford Friend and Dave Franklin, recorded on May 17th, 1962. This is another jazz standard that became a quintessential Fats Domino recording in a way. Um, It's good. I don't think this is a highlight for me. (laughs) Maybe just, again, I just think about Fats Domino. When my dreamboat initially worried with the intro that I was going to be subjected to something like Elvis's version of Old MacDonald. <laughs> but it came around, and I actually kind of like this. Uh, it, it's got... Uh, I'm trying to think of how to best to describe it. There's almost a hint of, like, there's a little boogie-woogie in here, maybe, that I'm hearing. Okay. Yeah, but I, I didn't mind this. All right, Gurdip. Yeah, I like this. It's a nice bouncy track, and um, as you said, I'm much more familiar with the Fats Domino um, version. I had a one of those Rhino Records box set of Fats Domino, so I got I went through a lot of his stuff, and this is one of the ones that stood out for me. And um, even like Cliff's version has that bouncy Fats Domino beat. It actually even gives me shades of When the Saints Go Marching In by Fats Domino from '58, hmm. I think. Um, it has that chugging beat, so I think. Uh, and he might have been inspired by that a little bit, the whole domino style, I guess. And um, I like how the instrumental break even like uh, picks it up with that great piano. It's a really good song. I know Brenda Lee also covered it, and that one's good. And even Brenda Lee couldn't get away from that fast domino style because it's so dumb. Right. So it's I like this. Track nine on the album is a song written by Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett again. 
Uh, this is recorded January 18th, 1962. I'm on my way. And though it's far From your lips to your heart Still I'm on my way has a real meditative quality to it um jimmy rogers had done i guess the first version of it and his is a little more ethereal than cliff takes it his is a little sparser at last, at last you're in my arms is this the road to love who can tell who can say but it really works to Cliff's benefit. Like he has this real nice warmth about the way he performs it that, uh, yeah, this is solid. This is a really solid cut. Yeah. It sounds like something you would have heard in like wild in the country, the Elvis film. Um, it's fine, but I think you need someone like, um, Elvis or Sam cook to really pull it off. It's okay, but just kind of whole hum to me. Um, probably not something I would go back to. Uh, and as Justin said, I think, cliff's patterning it off the jimmy roger version but it's all right just it's nothing like the other tracks so far yeah i like it i think the drawback for me is the same drawback that's on jimmy roger's record i i'm just not crazy about the um female backing vocals and i have to watch myself because it sounds like i just don't like female backing vocals i do but in this context not so much so the next track is Cliff's version of Spanish Harlem, written by Jerry Lieber and Phil Spector. This was recorded on December 4th, 1961. Obviously, Ben E. King's version of this song, the hit version, is the definitive version. It was one of those songs that people who looked down on rock and roll took notice of. I think Spanish Harlem was like the yesterday of its day. Um, it was written up in jazz magazines and the like saying, you know, oh, something substantial has come out of rock and roll. Did you hear a tune uh, up in Spanish Harlem? It's so pretty. Whew. I heard a tune. It's a rock and roll tune. For years I've been a jazz buff, you know. I got on a rock and roll thing. Yeah. Take something like up in Spanish Harlem, there's a rose that's so sweet, it grows up through the concrete, man. Hits on the run. To, it's like a heavyweight lyric. and Really beautiful. This was not a hit in Britain. In fact, it didn't even chart the original. So a singer named Jimmy Justice had a hit with it in the UK in September of 1962. A rare rose up in Spanish Harlem. It is a special one. It's never seen the sun. It only comes up when the moon is on the run and all the stars are gleaming. 
probably, for most people in Great Britain, the first version of this song they would have ever heard was likely this one. There is a rose in Spanish Harlem I have no trouble with his vocals here. I think the arrangement's a little strange. I, f- I don't know what these guys are saying in the background. I feel like they're saying rum. I, I just envision like South Sea sailors loading up boats with rum. <laughs> and- it sounded like um, something you hear from Little Drummer Boy. It's like rum. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm not. They told me. I'm Barbara. not saying this is the greatest cover in the world, but Cliff did record it in German and it went to number one in Germany. So there you go. Yeah, I love the, the the Benny King original. His voice is so beautiful. And apparently Aretha Franklin's version charted higher than Benny King's. Yes. I heard it and I, I didn't get it. I was like, this is in, inferior to his. I don't I don't understand. I don't get a lot of the, I've made this point in uh, in our shows. Like I don't get some of the, the chart um, listings and how people seem to gravitate towards certain versions, even though they were inferior than other versions. I just I don't I don't know. But um, let's let's get to uh, Cliff Richards' version, and yeah, this doesn't work for me at all. Like, I don't think his voice is strong enough to pull off this song. But he's trying. But like, that's a no for me, dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just it uh, it goes back to my original point. If you're gonna cover this song, do something different. Don't compare yourself to Benny King, the guy who has like a magical voice. And I don't like I said, I don't care for Aretha Franklin's version of this. But man. It's way better than Cliff's. Like, and she actually took it in a little different direction. I don't know, Justin. What do you think of this? It, my note was it's a serviceable cover. Uh, no one's buying this album for Cliff's version, though. Let's be real. I mentioned at the top of this episode that this is a cover-heavy album, and we have another one following it up. It's Cliff's version of the BB King song "You Don't Know," written by Walter Spriggs, recorded on December eleventh, nineteen sixty-one. You don't know how much I love you You don't know how much I care You don't know how much I need you Without you, life I can't bear You don't know, baby You don't know, baby You don't know, baby I like it. I mean, the shadows sound great on it. We probably haven't talked as much as we should about just how good the shadows sound on the tracks where they're backing up Cliff. Cliff is delivering a, a kind of restrained vocal, but it's got this easy laid back blues feel to it that's pretty enjoyable. Um, this is a good song, but it could have been a classic blues track if Cliff just hit it harder. He's way too soft with it. Like, come on, Cliff, get raw with it. Um, I'm going to have to hit you where it hurts, Ghosty. Uh, this is something like if Pat Boone had covered this original B.B. King song. It's just How dare you? 
How dare you? Way too (laughs) safe. It's that's the best way I can put it. Like comparison. I just wish he gave it more. Like he does try a little toward the end, but man, like pull the trigger, like, Check out BB King's original if you want to hear a hard-hitting version of this. Like, remember when Elvis would get raw with some of his songs, like One Night or Santa Claus is Back in Town? Like, I want that from Cliff, not just just singing this like a typical song. Like, just get down and dirty. I don't know. Justin, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, going back and revisiting and contrasting, I can appreciate that the arrangement that they came up with here is different from BB King's. Uh, you know, BB's version is more like a swing type blues you don't know how much i love you you don't know how much i care you don't know how much i need you without you life i can't bear you don't know whereas this is more of a ballad um but yeah his delivery is just a little too clean especially on you know you don't know baby and he's very clean on that, like very hard on that, that baby. And it's not like a, like, like you can imagine, you know, Elvis would baby, you know, or something like that, right. you know, not, not even that. <laughs> well, there are other blues excursions still to come in Cliff's career. So maybe one of those will be more up your alley. The next cut on the album, Falling in Love with Love, Rogers and Hart, recorded on December 5th, 1961. This album takes a left turn with this track. When I first heard it, I thought to myself, this sounds like the opening number to a big Broadway musical, and it is from a musical, from the 1938 musical The Boys from Syracuse. It's out of place on this album, but I like show tunes, so I like this. I fell in love with love one night when the moon was full I was unwise with eyes unable to see I fell in love with love with love everlasting But love fell out with me Yeah, I mean, that was the the real thing for me is that it has this whimsy to it that makes sense with it being a Rogers and Hart number. Um, and yeah, I, I I enjoyed this. Does it fit in the context, like coming right after a, you know, a number that's most well known by B.B. King? Th- does that quite work? Nah. But like you said, I, I think in isolation, if you take it as it is, I think it's actually Cliff's pretty strong on this one. Yeah, I know it's the show tune and has that airy quality, and it's not too bad. Just a quick question, though. Have you heard the Paul Anka cover of this? It's the same year as Cliff, but I think maybe have been a few months before that. And like, Now, that's a track. Like, it has this bongo beat, which is great, and then it pauses, and then he goes all out with the rest of the orchestra. Falling in love with love is playing a fool. Caring too much is such a juvenile fancy. Like he did his own interpretation, but I think Cliff seemed to keep with the show tune origins, uh, kept those intact. It sounds similar to Patty Page's version, which is nothing wrong wrong with the song. Like um, 
it's 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 good it's just um i wish he kind of took it out of those roots but you know it's good i think sinatra also did a, a, a version which and he had a great take as well to me, on this record, it sounds like a throwback to those first few Cliff albums where they had him doing legit show tunes. Here we have Cut 13, uh, Who Are We to Say, written by Ira Kozloff and Tom Prey. This is recorded on December 11th, 1961. Ira Kozloff should be a name that's familiar to you, right? Because uh, he co-wrote I Want You, I Need You, I Love You. This sounds to me, though, like a Johnny Mathis Pestiche. And by that, I mean the arrangement. It's very similar in a way to Misty, just a little faster. Who are we to say how a love begins? Why should we feel guilty? Is a kiss a waste of sense? Tell me, darling, who are we to say? I can't understand I get misty Just holding your hand Walk my way Oh, I love this. This is probably my number two on the album. This had originally been done by Sonny Gale, and she almost sort of speaks, sings the verses. Who are we to say? Why you care for me Like I care for you Why you're my destiny If you think now That our love's not here But Cliff really croons it And I really dig I gotta give props where, where I can Like this is a genuinely fantastic Tender performance uh, And I, I liked this a lot Gurdip? Yeah, I think this is also really good. And I, I added this to my rotation. Um, like like Justin said, Sonny Gale did the OG and that one's okay. But I really like the Paul Carr, Connie Francis version from the film Jamboree from 57, which is one, like, one of those low budget Alan Freed rock and roll films. Although Freed's mm-hmm. not in that one. Although it does have Dick Clark and I think like Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins are in that. I remember Buddy Knox did Hula Love in that one. But yeah, love Connie Francis's vocals on the, her version. But Cliff, yeah, it's it's really good. Um, yeah, I, as I said, I'm I'm not afraid to admit that I added this to my rotation. No shame Same. in my game. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about all these different versions of some of these songs, and we're going to do that in just a second with the last song on the album. But um, I, again, I think the reason why I don't hold this album in the same high esteem as 21 today is because of the lack of originals i you know 21 today you've got a number of songs written by members of the shadows in this album you've only got one so i've been told written by bruce so i kind of feel like side two could have used another original around this time but that's not to knock burt Bacharach and hal david who wrote the last song on this album i wake up crying This was recorded on December 4th, 1961. The same year, Chuck Jackson had uh, his version of I I Wake Up Crying. This version's very closely modeled after that. I I mean, it's a similar arrangement. Uh, It's just... It's just I Wake Up Crying, you know? It's just just a, a good performance of it. I wake up crying After tossing 
and turning and yearning the whole night long. Pretty baby, since you went away, I haven't spent a happy day. Yeah, this song is like that Chuck. Jackson version of this track, holy crap, does he own it? Like just raw emotion put on wax is incredible. Like when he belts up, pretty baby, please come back to me. You're like, girl, you better go to this dude. Um, and Cliff's, <laughs> Cliff's version isn't as hard hitting, but it's still very good. Um, I think his is more in line with Del Shannon's original, which isn't a bad thing. So it's it's really good. And Justin, yeah, I. <laughs> I've heard the the Chuck Jackson version and like like you said it's it's you know modeled very obviously on that version. Uh I contrasted this with Del Shannon's and I'm grateful that like both Cliff and Chuck didn't do that. Uh and and the thing that struck me and I I sent you guys this in the pre-show chat earlier this week it kind of reminds me how how the band does it here it reminds me of what Elvis and his band did on the film recorded for the movie Flaming Star from uh, from 1960 Summer Kisses Winter Tears you know and it's got sort of that that rhythm that's um in in that film because his character is a biracial white native american person they try to incorporate something like a uh, what they think you know what hollywood thinks is a native american rhythm Summer kisses went to tears That was what she gave to me Never thought I'd travel all along The trail of memory But it, it sort of has that going on, on on I Wake Up Crying And I think it really works, you know uh, Regardless of where that came from um, I really like this version of the song. So, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty solid way to close out the album. All right. I think out of the three of us, I think, Justin, you like this album the most, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I think I rec- did I say that it was it was similar in a way to Potluck? Was that the Elvis yeah, I, yeah, album I compared it to? Yeah. Point. Yeah. And the only thing that I was really, really disappointed about aside from blueberry Hill was that the copy that I had uh, online, I went in and counted and it is not, is not 32 minutes Mm. and 17 seconds. And I, I went into my audio editor to try to shave off, like, you know, in digital services, they'll add like a little artificial silence at the end of the track. Sure. So I shaved those off to try to get it down to like, really, can we squeeze it down to, to 3217? And it still only got to 3226. Uh. So Cliff, (laughs) he's on the cover of this album watching the clock and he, he must've lost track. He (laughs) Looked away for a couple <laughs> seconds. <laughs> My thanks once again to Justin and Gurdip of TCB Cast for appearing on the show. Hope you all enjoyed that. And in the grand tradition of me not being crazy about a particular song while we're recording, and then as I'm editing the show and hearing it often, I start to really like it. I, I now appreciate 
Cliff's version of When My Dreamboat Comes Home much more than I did a month ago when we recorded this. Uh, next month, Shadows collector Mark J. Daniels joins us to talk about Jet and Tony. Incidentally, Jet Harris played on a couple of the tracks we talked about today on our review. So it's a little sidebar episode, I guess you could say, where we'll talk about the recordings Jet Harris and Tony Meehan made together as a duo after they left the shadows. So that'll be next month. If you enjoy the show, please let us know. You can send an email. It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter too, we say yeah podcast, and follow us on Facebook. It's we say yeah. Just look for our Facebook page and all sorts of stuff are posted on there. I try to find as interesting and unique pictures as I can to put up there. And uh, great discussions, which we'll get into next month. Until then, have a great uh, January, and I'll see you uh, around Valentine's Day. How romantic. We say yeah. We say yeah. We say yeah.